Well, it is good to be back here. It is good to be in the pulpit. It feels strange as it always does on the heels of a few weeks away. Um, glad to see so many of you this morning, by the way. Uh, summer months drive me bananas as we all head in this direction and that, whether it's for ministry purposes or vacation or, or whatever. But it is good to be here and good to come again to the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word given to your people so that we might know you, that we might know the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know not merely how to conduct ourselves or uh, what your specific purposes and will is for our life in every circumstance, but Lord, we know that this great book that you have given to us, Older Testament and Newer, testifies to you. This is eternal life that we would know you. I pray this morning that you would put your son on display. I pray that he would be higher in our thinking. I pray, Lord, that we would go down in our thinking. And I pray that Christ might be exalted in our hearts as he is worthy. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Well, we return today to our exposition of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and we come really, as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, last time we were here, to one of the loftiest passages in Scripture. It is, as Corey said, familiar, there is no doubt about that, but it is anything but old, it is anything but tired. It is a vault in which the richest treasures of theology can be found. It is a passage that deals with the deity of Christ, the essence of Christ, the eternal God, the, the God who is, who is fully man. It deals with the incarnation of Christ. It deals with the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the coronation of Christ. It is easy and would be easy to preach any number of sermons, a whole series on this passage, and yet completely miss Paul's point. It's important to remember again that as we come to this text, what Paul has to say to us here is an illustration of the point he's trying to make. One commentator wrote this, Paul has leveraged Christology in the service of ecclesiology. What is he saying? He's saying simply this, that Paul is making a point about unity in the church and he's using Jesus as the supreme example of that very thing that will build unity and preserve unity in the church of Christ. This is a passage about humility. It wasn't really written as a defense for the divinity of Christ. It wasn't written so that we might wrangle and untangle the hypostatic union. It, it, it wasn't really written as a matter of debate about the kenosis. All of those things are here, but they're not really the point. This is a passage about personal humility, humility in the church as it relates to corporate unity. And Jesus is being upheld as the supreme example of a humble mindset, a humble attitude. Now, if you recall, we began to slow down. We pumped the brakes starting in chapter one and around verse 27, which we had read this morning where we find that the overarching concern of this section really is that we would, as it says, you can look there, that we would conduct ourselves, only conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the main verb of the section. This is the, the first imperative in this epistle. And the question arises, how do we conduct ourselves in a way that demonstrates the great transforming power of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ? How is it that we live in a manner that puts Christ on display, the gospel on display? That's really the focal point. Paul begins by looking at the situation in which we find ourselves in this world. It's the same situation the Philippians found themselves. We are on a collision course with this world. 
We're swimming upstream, both individually and corporately in this life. And that collision course in verse 28, he speaks about opponents. We will have opponents and they will cause for us, verse 29, suffering. And there will be characteristic in this life, conflict, verse 30, and struggle. And Paul says, look, if you're, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of your salvation, worthy of Christ, if you're gonna walk in that way, you're gonna have to do it together. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. This is something of which you are part of a greater whole. It's very clear from this text, again, the importance of the corporate dimension to the Christian life. A mature church, one that conducts itself worthy of the gospel, is a unified church. Paul says you must stand together in one spirit. You must strive together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. You must suffer together for Christ's sake. This is how we handle pressure that comes upon the church from the outside, but of course that causes pressure from within, doesn't it, as we try to live together. For sinners, unity, togetherness is very challenging. In fact, I would say that it is in this world, as the world tries to put on unity, it is, it is merely a temporal thing it is something that fractures over and over and over again. We live in a world that's divided into a thousand different camps and it will be 2000 by 2030. This is the way the world works. They get together around a set of things but it isn't long before they fracture over all of that. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is different. All the selfishness and the rancor and the division that characterizes the world is taken care of in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died for us and saved us, why? So that we might no longer serve ourselves but him who died for us, the one who gave his life for us. We now have our compasses oriented away from self toward God and toward others. That's why Jesus says the two great commandments are what? Love God first and foremost and then love men. Love for yourself is a given. You came out of the womb that way. But Christ sets us free from that enslavement. And that gospel, again, changes us so that we are radically different. And Paul implores us in chapter two and verse two to make his joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose and one alone. What is our focal point? What is our purpose? Well, he tells us in verse three. Here's that one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so Paul directs us toward this life of humility, this mindset of self-forgetfulness, and he says, Christ is the one you need to think about. That's where he sets the bar for the Philippians, and that is where the bar is set for you and for me. And a number of weeks ago, the last time we were in this text, we considered the humility of Christ. Paul upholds him as our example for living a life worthy of the gospel, and so we looked at Christ in his humiliation, and we saw that as very God of God, he did not cling, he did not grasp, he did not pant after all that was rightfully his as God, all that rightfully belonged to him, all the rights and prerogatives as God, and without reducing his deity in any way, shape, or form, he emptied himself by taking to himself real humanity. Jesus took a giant step down into this world, out of heaven, away from that pre-incarnate glory, 
which was veiled in his incarnation, and he started down a descending staircase, which began with taking on flesh, being born to peasant parents in a manger, and ended on a Roman cross. We put it this way, eternal God took on human flesh. The king of kings became a slave in willing obedience to his father. The prince of life died in the place of the guilty. That's how far Christ came down for us. The most despised, the most unthinkable death. And on top of all of that, suffering the wrath of God for sins which he did not commit, that you and I might have God forever. That's how far Christ came down for the redemption of his people. And it's no wonder that Paul uses this as an illustration for believers because you and I both know we understand to whatever degree we understand that condescension, we get it. We were undeserving, we were unworthy. And yet Christ did this for us in humiliation. He came and gave himself for us. And so Paul uses this and reflects on it to set the bar and say to the believer, look, this is what Christ has done for you. This is the way you are to live toward one another. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the kind of life, if you will, that finds pleasure with God. And this would be enough for us, wouldn't it? As you think about it, if this was all that we knew about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he left heaven and that he came to earth and that he took on flesh, made in the likeness of man, seen in appearance as a man, he, he came and he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And you and I would say hallelujah for all of eternity if that was all that we ever knew. We would worship him, the humble Christ, the Christ of Calvary, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that is where it ended, that would be enough for us, but that is not where it ends with Christ in his humiliation, which is why this morning we turn to verses nine to 11 to consider not so much what Christ has done, but what God the Father did in response to the great condescension of his son. There are two, in our text, two significant and guaranteed outcomes, responses, you might call them, to the humiliation of Christ. And what is shocking about this passage is that you might find a passage here or there. We could go to Titus and talk about what it means to be a godly woman. We could go to 1 Timothy and talk about what it means to be a godly man. We could go to Ephesians 6 and talk about the responsibilities of children to their parents. This text has implication for every man, for the church, for those who are not in the church, for those who are in heaven, for those who are in hell, for those who are spiritual beings, for those who are physical beings. This is the most widely applicable passage, perhaps in the whole of Scripture. It's an astonishing passage of Scripture that has ramifications for every intelligent being in the universe. What are these two outcomes? Well, there are these. Number one, that Christ was exalted by the Father. And secondly, that Christ will be honored by the whole of creation. We're gonna look at those today as we come to our text. Let's read together, beginning in verse nine. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first response to the humility, the great humility, the profound humility of Christ, all that Christ did in obedience to the Father comes from the very heights of heaven, and that is that Christ is exalted 
by his father. Jesus Christ is given the loftiest status, the greatest honor, the, the most remarkable glory, and all of it is joyfully given to the Lord Jesus Christ by his father. We have seen, perhaps you have seen, the presidential medal of honor being presented by one president or another to, to, a, to a civilian who has done something for this country. Maybe you have seen the, somebody knighted by the Queen of England. Friends, that stuff is nothing in comparison to this. This is the highest distinction, the greatest fame, the most profound acclaim, not on earth and not just in the stratosphere. This isn't just merely worldwide, this is universal. And all of the universe will take in the reality that Jesus Christ is the greatest, that he is the preeminent one, that he is the one through whom all things were made and that all things were made for. He is the hub of life. He is the center of everything. And the text tells us that God did not merely exalt the son, but he highly exalted him. That word highly exalt means to super exalt. It means to exalt beyond measure. There is no higher you can go. There is no greater ceiling. This is the superlative exaltation, and it goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should expect this, shouldn't we? That God would super exalt his super humble son. Jesus said this, the greatest among you shall be your what? Your servant. Was there ever a greater servant? Was there ever a lower slave? Was there ever one who undertook so much loss to himself that he might bring so much benefit to the undeserving? Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Who is it, brothers and sisters, who ever started so high and yet descended so low? Whoever gave up so much? Whoever humbled himself more than the very creator of man who then takes on flesh and dies on the cross for those same rebels that he created? If, if, think of it for a second, if, if exaltation in God's economy is proportional at all to one's condescension, you get what I'm saying? If there's any relationship in how high one is lifted by how low one goes in humility, how could Christ not be the highest of all? For this reason, God highly exalted him. What reason? Because, verse six, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of man, and we're told that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason, for that reason. Just how did the father exalt his son? Well, it began when Jesus was resurrected. When God brought him up from the grave in a supernatural demonstration of power over death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and we'll pick up in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man <clears throat> came death, that is a reference, of course, to Adam. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Do you see it? This step of resurrection, overcoming the grave, overcoming death, was the the first step in the exaltation of the Son. He is the first fruits. He is the one who goes as our forerunner, rising up from the grave so that we too might be raised in newness of life. We're promised in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, among many other places, that God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. What you will see in all of this is that we follow on the coattails of Christ. And there's a reference to the end, this culminating impact, and and this is all building as we look at it. So Christ was resurrected, that was the first step, and it's all progressive. Next, he was ascended. And we don't think often about the ascension of Christ. If you want a great message, a great message on the ascension, there was a message preached by Paul Twist, a pastor at Grace Community Church at the Shepherds Conference. You can find that message. He gives you seven things to think about in regards to the ascension. Maybe you haven't thought about it much, but it's only because your imagination is too small. I wish we could go back. Can you imagine that day as the disciples gathered there and Christ was lifted up into the clouds in glory. Take a look with me. Let's just, we're just looking at one passage here or there for each of these. Over in Acts and chapter one, we read in verse nine, after he said these things, referring to Jesus, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on. Can you imagine what that was like? Imagine what it was to see him as this cloud comes and the text tells us that it received him up and out of their sight. What do you think was in their mind at that point? Not only that they would be resurrected, but that what we go somewhere. We're not left in the grave. No, I saw Christ up and lifted up in glory and it says they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going And behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? That seems like a kind of a silly question. I know why I'd be looking. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In Luke's gospel, we're told that they worshiped him. Chapter 24 and verse 50, you don't need to turn there. He led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, yes, no doubt, Who have you seen ascend into heaven? Who have you seen? Can you imagine the day? And here it is, faith is sight, and they are are looking at Christ as he's going up, and they're worshiping him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Oh, the Father exalted the Son in resurrection and then in the ascension and then in his session or or the fact that Jesus was seated in heaven, his coronation, if you will. He was seated at the right hand of God in glory. Look over at Hebrews chapter one. And we'll begin in the very first verse. God, after he spoke long ago to the Father's in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. This is one of those texts again, just attributing to Christ the greatness of his name. And when he had made purification for sins, note that again, this focus now 
after his humiliation, that's what this text is saying. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become much better than the angels, he has inherited, note this, a more excellent name than they. And the writer of the Hebrews will go on to argue, have you ever thought about how, 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 how far Christ transcends even the highest of the angels? Christ has the greatest name, the name above every name. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, we read these words, the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above all of that. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And it is from that very place, seated, crowned at the right hand of the Most High, that Jesus intercedes for you and for me. He continues to minister on our behalf. And all of these realities were the triumphant boast of the apostles. I want you to turn with me to one more passage and I'll give your fingers a rest. Look at Acts and chapter two. All of these realities spoken of again in the, the preaching of Peter. They were at the forefront of Peter's mind. They should be at the forefront of our mind. Not just the cross of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the, the fact that Jesus is seated, the fact that he is crowned. Acts 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, verse 23. Now we'll pick up in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man. Do you hear all that? All of that speaking about Christ and his his humility. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of his death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And David's gonna say, you know, I'm sorry, Paul, Peter is going to say as he preaches, look, David wrote those words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in some way, shape, or form, surely he wrote them speaking of himself at some level, but ultimately, look, they couldn't have been written by David about David because David's bones are still with us. David is not exalted. There is only one who could say that God had kept him and that his flesh would never undergo decay, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, speaking of David, and knew that God had sworn to him Jesus with an oath, I'm sorry, to him David with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, therefore, here's my point, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yes, you nailed a physical body to that tree. And yes, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But understand this, he is not in that tomb. 
And that Jesus whom you nailed to the tree is in fact God himself seated at the right hand of God. He is exalted higher than the heavens. Resurrected, ascended, seated, and all of it is is simply prelude to what is still yet to come. The greatest unveiling of all time. The sheet has not fully been drawn off Christ. The veil has not been fully removed. This is not the full picture because our text tells us that the son was also given a name. He was conferred a title. Look back in Philippians with me and again at verse nine. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, look at this, the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Three times in verses nine and 10, we see that name, name, name. And you and I are used to thinking of names as merely ways that that, that people designate you from me or one person from another. They're just something that was assigned to us in our, in our birth. But throughout the Bible, it's radically different. You see that, that Bible names have meaning. And so it was in ancient cultures that somebody's name communicated really their essence and oftentimes their station, their character, or their their calling. It's much more comprehensive in, in, in those cultures. Last week, Charles spent time with you speaking about the meaning behind that unspeakable name, Yahweh, right? I told him he should have used the term ineffable tetragrammaton because it really impressed me when somebody said that once. I didn't know what it meant. It means unspeakable four-letter word. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It is the name that is the highest of names, so high that the Jews wouldn't speak it. And so it is here that Christ is given a name, really a title, one that speaks of his sovereignty, one that speaks of his rule. It is the name Lord. Kurios in the Greek, and interestingly, kurios is rendered uh, in the Hebrew, I'm sorry, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, kurios is, is what is often rendering the, the word Yahweh. The name given to Christ here, think about it, it's something subsequent to the giving of his name, Jesus. You remember that Joseph and Mary were told what to name their son Jesus means Jehovah saves, and it was the name that was given to him in his incarnation, describing what it was, in fact, that he would do in his earthly sojourn. It is his saving name. But Paul here is pointing to the fact that that humble servant, Jesus, has now been crowned with glory and honor, and he has given the name which is above every other name, and that name is found in verse 11. It is Lord It is a name that speaks to the fullness of all that God is, his attributes, his power, his authority, everything, all of his privileges. In other words, Jesus is God. And this is a designation that according to this text is so soaring and so separated, so set apart, so sovereign that there is not a being on the universe who can stand before it. There are other Jesuses in this world, right? You can go south of the border and find a lot of Jesuses. But I challenge you to find another Lord. There is but one Lord. This is the most exclusive club in the universe. They talk about the President's Club being the most exclusive club. (laughs) No, what are we on now, 40-something, right? There is one. There is only one. There will always and only be one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about this in the Philippian context. 
you remember that they are a, a Roman colony. And emperor worship was the chief religion of the Roman world. And it was expected of every Roman citizen that they would make a public declaration of Caesar as Lord. And there were countless believers who gave their blood defying that commandment. They lost their lives because they knew there was one Lord and one Lord only and they could not be unfaithful to him. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. John MacArthur writes, Jesus had many names, many titles, Messiah, Emmanuel, Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, the Word, but Lord is the name that is above every name. And you could say, well, wasn't Jesus always Lord? Yes, but here's the point. Jesus Christ has always been God. Jesus Christ will never cease being God. He could be no other than God. But in his earthly sojourn, people did not acknowledge him as God. The text tells us that when people looked at Jesus, what did they see? He was held in appearance as a man. You see, Jesus was unrecognized in his deity, and he was never publicly acknowledged by the, the whole of humanity for who he actually is. And what we see before us is this great vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ. You feel it. I know you feel it if you're in Christ. You know what it is to be mocked. You know what it is to see that people think you're just leaning on a crutch, some irrelevant guy named Jesus who is just a man of the history books, who has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, he was a moral guy, but nothing more than that. And what, why do you guys hook your, your hopes on this pie in the sky and within you is what? No. This is true and it is right and he is in fact Lord, and we cannot expect that this world will ever do more than merely tip their hat to the idea at best. Jesus was rejected in his humanity. We are rejected because he was rejected, but now he is exalted, and when he will be brought on full display, manifested in his deity before the whole earth, he will be acknowledged for who he is. And that is Paul's point. That Jesus will be exalted one day for the highest position and he will be exalted in undiminished glory and he will be recognized and honored and worshiped by the whole of his creation. Beloved, how high and how great is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to have first place in everything. He is before your husband. He is before your wife. He is before your children. He is before this church. He is before any friendship. He is before any lust. He is before anything in this world. There can be nothing but nothing that we love and adore and worship more than him. And it is a grief, it is a grief in my own heart and it is a grief as I, Susie and I had the opportunity to move and, and, and see a couple of churches in the last couple of weeks, how low and how commonplace and how human only in the eyes of so many is the Lord Jesus. Beloved, he is the friend of sinners, that is true, but he is also king of kings. And he is our sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. And he is the Lord of lords. He is, as Peter preached, both Lord and Christ. And the confession and the acknowledgement of that lordship is the very door through which any sinner hoping to be saved will have to go. 
we hear much about Jesus as Savior and praise God, he is the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man. If you wish to be saved to Jesus, you must go. But understand this, he is not merely Savior, he is Lord and Savior. And you must come to him confessing his lordship and bowing before him. He is your ruler. He is your Lord. He is your life. He is, he is all of that. Yes, he is lowly and he has laid himself out for you. But at the same time, he has been resurrected, ascended, seated, crowned. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. It's to that Jesus you come. Romans 10.9 says what? If you confess with your lips Jesus as what? Lord. It is a package deal. And there are so many who demean and diminish Christ because they only see him. They stopped at the cross. They stopped in the lowliness of his humanity. They've never thought beyond the fact that Jesus is my savior and he rescues me from hell. And that is the greatest reality in, in, in my life. I'm so thankful that Christ saves from sin. But beloved, there needs to be a springboard that launches your thinking to higher thoughts about who Christ is. He is our savior. He is our Lord King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the blasphemy of Rome's crucifix, which leaves Jesus on a cross to be crucified again tomorrow. Once for all, so worthy was the precious blood of this lamb. So infinite his worth that one sacrifice would pay for all of sins for all of time to everyone who ever hopes in his name. This is the blasphemy of the, of, of the buddy Jesus mentality of the modern church. Beloved, may we never forget the exalted Christ. He should capture our highest thoughts and our greatest praise and our most determined obedience and our most eager efforts for his kingdom, for he is our king. And what Paul is saying in Philippians is that the humiliation of Christ, great as it is, is a thing of the past. He has accomplished that great work. It is finished the humiliation of Christ is complete and he has fulfilled all righteousness and he now is and will forever be in a state of transcendent glory, the most exalted one forever elevated above everything and everyone. You might think of it this way. Paul points to a day, get this, that Christ will be the sole preoccupation of the entire universe. There will be no one distracted on that day. There will be one thing on that day. One person and him high and lifted up. Beyond anything I could possibly even attempt to try and paint verbally. And that brings us to the second necessary response to the humiliation of Christ. Not only is Jesus exalted by the Father and given the title of Lord, but secondly, Christ is honored by all creation. And here is the climax of all history. This is the pinnacle. Let's look at it. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And here's the reason why. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the crescendo of creation. Every personal, intelligent being in the universe. Why don't you just say all people? Because it's going to be more than all people. Every personal, intelligent being on the universe who has ever existed, who now exists, who will ever exist, 
Every created being, without exception, will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the debates, all the contentions, all the dis- disagreements, will, uh, all the deception, it'll all just dissipate. And to that, we can say a hearty amen. There will be no more fake news. It's all just going to dissipate, and the whole world will finally be of one mind. Coca-Cola was not able to achieve it in the 70s, teaching the world to sing one unified song. Here's that song, my friends, and it's a much higher song than whatever Coke can come up with. The great point of agreement will be the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be but one posture. Look at it. Every knee will bow. That is to say that there will be a very public conscious recognition of the majesty and sovereignty of Christ and everyone, every last one will bow in subjection to him. The angels and the redeemed in heaven will bow before their king. Every human walking on earth at Christ's return will bow before him. Those under the earth, the dead, the demons, every rational creature, wherever they may be, will possess but one common posture, and that is to be bowing low in abject obedience and submission to this Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. You can touch your knee. Your knee will bow. You will bow. I will bow. All will bow, whether readily or reluctantly, because there is going to be no other possible response. There is no other stance you can take. You cannot run. You cannot stand. You cannot turn your back on him. He is Lord, and he will command you to bow, and you will, in fact, bow. You must bow. You will bow. Oh, we will see him for who he is. And I would drop to three knees if I had them. Look with me at Isaiah 45. Your fingers are rested now. Isaiah 45. And verse 20. Here is God calling the nations, those nations that have rebelled, mankind who has stiff-armed God to come before him. And he says in Isaiah 45, 20, gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And mark these words. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. And hear this invitation to be saved. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And for a third time he says it, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me, these words might sound familiar to you, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord is righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame in the Lord. All the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Do you see the picture? But here's what I want you to see that you may have not seen before. 
Do you see that these words that Paul employs in Philippians 2 are the very words that Isaiah employed speaking of God most high in Isaiah 45? What is Paul then saying about the Lord Jesus Christ? That he is the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God himself. That is who Christ is. This is none other than a declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder every knee will bow. The Son comes into the world in willing obedience to the Father. He humbles himself. He takes to himself human flesh, and he goes to the cross as the great sin-bearer, and the Father raises up the Son, exalts the Son, brings the Son up into heaven, seats him at his right hand, and now he gives him the name which is above every name. He is, in fact, Lord, and to him every knee will bow. There is no other posture but bowing before him. You might also note back in Philippians, there's but one confession. One posture and one confession. And it will be the believer's loud boast and it will be the unbeliever's humbled concession. When Christ returns at his second coming, that's what's in sight here, there will be only one chorus. It will be the chorus of mankind. It will be the chorus of angels, both elect and evil. Imagine the day, brother and sister, again, put yourself there, every holy angel joyfully singing, Jesus is Lord. Every redeemed sinner with your whole being, with eternal gratitude, declaring at the top of your lungs, Jesus is Lord. And there in that same place, the defiant rebel subdued and bowing before the son, confessing under his breath, Jesus is Lord. And there the professed atheist exposed in his folly, acknowledging what they have known all along. Every high-minded academic, every cynic, humbled before him, mockers, mocking no more. Their tongues will be compelled to join in the universal confession that Jesus is Lord. What a day that will be. Amen? A day of exaltation filled with great rejoicing for all who are in Christ Jesus and a day of humiliation and shame for all who have rejected him and ignored him in this life. Believer, a day is coming when you will willingly bow your knee yet again before Christ, gladly confessing him with all that you have as Lord, and you will enter into your rest. What a day that will be. Unbeliever, I tell you, and again, I assure you, it gives me no joy to tell this, but you must be warned because Jesus himself would warn you. If you're a young person here this morning and you're distracted by any other thing, give your attention to this. Because God never lies. And the Bible is crystal clear that if you do not bow before Christ as Lord in this life, a day is coming when you will bow. Reluctantly, perhaps, but certainly, you must and you will before Christ the King and you will find your mouth saying what you have never said in your life, perhaps. You will be saying before the King of Kings, Jesus, you are Lord. You are right. I am wrong. You are righteous. I am sinful. Yours is heaven. Yours is glory. And to me, shame and dishonor and I tell you, he will look to you in that day and he will hear you say, Lord, Lord. And he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And your heart will sink like a stone. You will be cast for all eternity into the lake of fire and it will be everlasting torment. 
There will never be a minute. There will never be a break. There'll never be a day where you're able to escape the agony of that world by taking a nap. There'll be no vacation. There'll be no moment in your existence forever and ever and ever, and I could stay here forever saying forever. I can't think of anything worse than being separated from Christ. My friend, I know what it was to be separated from Christ and I beg you, come to Jesus while there's time. Come to Jesus before that day when you are compelled by him as he, as, he, as he takes your tongue and twists it out of your mouth. Come to him in humility of heart. Come now, bow now, confess now, humble yourself before the Lord. Listen, there are only two options in life. You understand this, right? This is a maxim of life. You either humble yourself or you will be humbled. There is no one who is not humbled in the end. Isaiah 55, listen to the graciousness of our God. This very same Lord Jesus Christ urges you, begs you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and he will have compassion on him. That's a promise. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The Lord Jesus Christ gladly receives repentant sinners. There couldn't be better news than that today, this day. If you will come to him in genuine faith and repentance, he will in fact save you. And you will know life like you have never known it. And I want to urge you with all my heart and all the sincerity that I could possibly muster up, I want to urge you to flee from the wrath to come. I don't want this end for anybody, but this will be the end for those who reject Christ. Well, we need to wrap up. The last part of verse 11 tells us that all of this exalting of the Lord Jesus Christ will result finally in the glory that comes to God the Father. God delights in the honoring of his son. John 5.23 gives us this fundamental principle that if you want to honor, honor the Father, you must honor the Son. I'll read it to you. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see it? To reject Jesus Christ is to reject the Father's extended hand to you, wanting to spare you the torments of hell. And to refuse Christ is to refuse the Father. How you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ matters immensely, and you cannot claim to worship God and leave Jesus out of the picture. You can't reduce him to something less than he is. You can't call him merely a good teacher. You can't say that he was just merely a moral example. He is Lord of Lords. And to honor God, you must honor him as both Savior and Lord, for that is who Christ is. I wanna close in just asking two questions. You might jot them down. You might think on them. One question that obviously comes out of this text is simply this. Do you have the humble attitude that Christ possessed? Do you have the humble attitude that Paul is urging us to have in this text? Believer in Christ, this is what Paul's really after in us. And it's what we should be after too, that, that humility and that self-forgetfulness that we would present ourselves as Jesus did, as a lowly servant of God and a, a loving servant of one another. 
Is that your aim, like Christ, to look out for the interests of others? Is that the way you conduct yourselves in our midst? Or, or does this place sort of just exist for you? You see, that, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus lived to, to meet the needs and to serve and to pour himself out. Is, is that the way you live here and in our midst? That is the kind of life that honors the Lord. That is the kind of life that is worthy And I want you to understand this. This is the promise of this text as well and the rest of Scripture, that to go low and to give yourselves for Christ's people, to render yourself the servant of all, will result ultimately, Jesus promises this, in what? Your exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might exalt you at the proper time. So do you have a humble attitude like Jesus? And secondly, this would be my question, is the Lord Jesus Christ exalted in your heart? He is exalted. He is precious to the Father. Is he precious to you? And we're not talking theory here. I'm not asking, do you come to church or do you give to the ministry or do you read your Bible? While all of that is good, the real question I'm asking is, are you captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he the highest thing to you? Is he your life? You see, if Jesus is to be the sole preoccupation of the universe, then he certainly ought to be the center of your world as one who has already bowed the knee before him and confessed him as Lord in this life. He should be the center of everything, the fundamental motivation of your life. You see, and and I want you to think carefully with me here, try to get what I'm saying. There, There is something in the heart of every Christian that is so captivated with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not formal. It's personal. And it's relational. Ladies, let me ask you, how precious was Jesus Christ to Mary Magdalene? How precious was the Lord to to Martha and to Mary? There was something personal there, wasn't there? How precious was Jesus to the woman at the well? How consumed was her conversation after she met with Christ to go back to the city and tell all the men about a man who could tell her everything she'd ever done? How precious to Jesus was that prostitute who wept at his feet in front of a bunch of self-righteous men and then wiped his feet with her hair. Men, it's no different for you. How much did the Lord Jesus dominate the landscape of those fishermen, James and John, that they would abandon whatever it is those manly hands were doing that they might give their lives in service to the Lord of Lords? Wasn't it John who spoke often about the fact that Christ loved him? Wasn't it John found resting on the breast of our Savior at the Last Supper? Think about Peter. Didn't he weep bitterly when he denied the Lord? That was no small thing to him, as though he'd broken some minor infraction in his Christian life. He wept because it was personal. And oh, was he humbled and did he give his life in sacrificial service, shepherding the flock of God and tending the lambs of Jesus. Paul, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul, his his only aspiration, we'll get to it in the next chapter, but his only earthly aspiration was to know Christ and to be conformed to his suffering, to, to draw so near to Jesus that he would follow in his footsteps and that he would be pleasing to Christ in all things. And that is my question to you, beloved, is do you have that kind of personal, relational depth of life with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not fundamentally about your family. It is not fundamentally about 
clean living or feeding the poor or even ultimately about evading judgment. That's really not it. Christianity at its core is about Jesus Christ. It is about worship. It is about one who is so elevated in your heart and in your life that you would have no other. He is the consuming passion of your life. I don't preach to you as one who has accomplished and achieved all of that. I preach to you one who has to bow before it myself. And trust me, I have a long, long way to go. But by his grace, yes? And one day we too will have that great joy of seeing him come and our faith will be sight. Beloved, do you know Christ? then if so, he will be a treasure to your soul and the very joy of your life.